to come in, lap after lap after lap, and what does he do? He ignores them. A committee meeting about it, stick it on and send him out. Just get it through the bus stop chicane, George, try and straight line it, get to the line and we'll see what happens. Paris tries to cut off Hamilton, oh, 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 oh. and goes straight on. This is quite appalling, this is the worst start for a Grand Prix that I have ever seen in the whole of my life. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Unqualified. Tonight, we've got the usual cast of characters. This is Graham coming to you from Philly. Uh, we've got G with us tonight, who somehow has miraculously found a way to downgrade on the quality of the city that he broadcasts from, live from the hot commodity that is Ithaca, New York. <laughs> G, how you doing tonight? Always in search of new lows. Uh, <laughs> doing great, man. Um, just got back from uh, from Montreal, so I'm I'm on a bit of a high, following in your footsteps. Hard not to be uh, in the Great North. We should absolutely start there. I mean, we got a we got a lot of racing, a lot of politics to talk about. Let's start with the trip because I think similarly to me when I went to Miami, I also did not know that you were going to Montreal until basically you were there. So <laughs> give us a little bit of the backstory. Uh, how did it happen? And yeah, how was your how was your time? Yeah, look, I I was uh, I was feeling a bit outdone myself with you going to Miami, and so I figured, well, what's the next uh, what's the next best spot? And uh, I had a had an open place to stay in Ithaca, so I figured that's just a, a hop, skip, and a jump away from Montreal. So, yeah, I had always I came up here intending to go to Montreal, but um, you know, honestly, had kind of put off the whole like planning and detailed logistics, playing it a bit by a bit by ear, so. Uh, you know, I looked at earlier in the week, like places to stay and it looked like, yeah, there was plenty that were expensive, but, um, you know, some plenty of options on the outskirts a little bit that were still affordable. So I thought, ah, I got plenty of time to, to book a room. So, uh, Friday morning at like 2am, I'm like doing my final like trip planning and, uh, looking at hotels again. And in like the three days since I looked last, like prices had skyrocketed stuff in the city was like. $600 to a thousand per night. And I was legitimately like second guessing if I was going to go. Um, and honestly had like stumbled into this Airbnb that was 150 bucks a night in the old, old city, right by the port that you take to get across the river to go to the stadium. So I don't know what this Airbnb host was thinking. I think she just wasn't, she was like based in Toronto and I don't think she was aware of what was happening in Montreal. So I snuck in my spot there, booked the room, headed out the next day. Got, yeah. You got to love countries with terrible sporting culture. Best place to book Airbnbs for sporting oh, events. I, I feel like obligated now to tell her like, hey, by the way, you know, you could have totally charged me like $500 more per night for that place. Because it was like literally like logistically the perfect location. I mean, it was a 10 minute walk from the poor. If you're going to go and do something similar, I would absolutely recommend staying in old city, like way more character. The whole boardwalk area was really cool. A lot of good restaurants. Whereas like the rest, so did you take a ferry to the race? Did you take a ferry? Yeah. So, I mean, it's on an Island, right? And so there's a number of ways you can get there, but, but really the two are, you can go by ferry. And I think a lot of people, um, the volume of people probably go by train. Um, especially if they're coming from somewhere else, more central to the city, but the ferry was great, but you absolutely have to book it ahead of time. Um, getting there was pretty easy, but 
as as crowds clear out, you would be amazed how few people booked ferries in advance. And, and Friday in particular, they only ran like once an hour. And so I got out there pretty early. The one immediately after the end of the practice sessions was booked. So I was at like stuff ended what at six o'clock. I was on the like 750 ferry out of there. People were still showing up, like booking the 850 and 950. But most people had resolved to like take the hour walk across one of the two bridges back to the city. So oh, wow. it's a little bit of a, a logistical hurdle if one, you're not riding the train or two, you don't plan ahead. But I mean, you book the ticket the morning of, you have your pick of the ferries. I think Saturday and Sunday, they have a lot more ferries that are going. Um, but still a little bit different than the States where there's ample parking for 60,000, a hundred thousand people at any event. So you went to Friday practice for most of the day and then you went to Saturday qualifying in the rain. Saturday, yeah. Did you do, how, how, how did you get a ticket? Did you do like a general admission thing for a two day pass or did you kind of piecemeal it both days? And also, cause I, this was a thing that I've, cause I'm, I'm going to Europe in September and going to go to Monza and what I'm discovering is there is this like getting tickets to F1 races is like, it is very difficult and it's not abundantly clear who deals and like second market, primary market. Like, so what, what was that like for you in Montreal? And do you have any advice? Like, did you learn anything about how to get tickets that you take away for another weekend? Yeah. So, I mean, my takeaway was I thought the secondary sellers worked out fine. I mean, I in particular used vivid seats and they seem to have ample tickets available, both from a, whole weekend pass as well as like individual day sessions. So early on I was, I mean, I was by myself, so I wasn't overly passionate about going to the actual race given the the ticket prices. Cause a lot of grandstand seats at that time, at least kind of last minute were a thousand plus. So, and I plan on going to Austin and Mexico city. So, you know, I was kind of more curious about what did it feel like to be in the city and experience the, the local vibe. So Day of, I was intending on using Vivid Seats to get the the pass for the day, but my my Canadian data was like so bad. So data was included on Verizon, but the actual like quality of the data was so low that I could never load anything. So I ended up, I was sitting there <laughs> trying to buy the ticket on the ferry, didn't work. So I ended up getting one from a scalper and like negotiating with him, like making a, he was like, oh, 60. And I was like, I can get it on this app for 30. Meanwhile, the app that I couldn't actually load. You're full, just totally <laughs> oh, full of 100%. shit. 100%. Yeah, and he idea. was like, okay, that's cool. And I mean, we were already, I only made it by practice too. So he was like ready to go, I think, for the day. So I got the ticket for 30 bucks, walked in. The next day, I had bought it in the morning for the whole Saturday. Um, took about an hour, almost two hours to actually load, which was kind of shitty because again, I was like trying to get out to the to the ferry by like 10.50 and I hadn't gotten the ticket yet, so I was getting a little worried. So definitely do that maybe like the night before. But um, I thought Vivid Seats or likewise, like some of the competitors would be perfectly fine to to get seats that day. So what about the fan experience? Like once you got to the island, like what did you do Yeah, outside of sitting in your grandstand seat and watching? Like what else did, did you yeah, do? Yeah, so Friday I did general emission. Fr- uh, Saturday I did a grandstand seat and I was situated um, basically at the end of the the um, the hairpin, which was a pretty cool mm-hmm. seat. I refused to sit in the Lance Stroll grandstand. So um, and I think <laughs> the one particularly like at the apex was better because you saw people coming down from one straightaway and got to see that bit as well as them like 
the angle and, and the actual approach to oh, the you, long. You, you sat on the home straight, like at the final turn. At yeah. The, yeah. The, the whatever it was like came. turn. Oh, that's turn cool. 10. So I thought that was really good seating. I mean, you didn't get a lot of the action that you got either at like turn one and two, which I think in retrospect for Canada in particular was where a lot of people's laps were like made or broken. But I do think yeah. the hairpin would have been cool for the race in particular, as you see one, like certain drivers like Leclerc and Russell making a lot of passes there. Um, but also then setting up for the the home straight pass. So I thought that was a perfect grandstand. But admittedly, in, in Montreal in particular, I don't know about all the other tracks, but general admission was very limited in terms of what that actually afforded you. There was like one spot with, I think, the 8-9 chicane that you probably had a really cool view. And then you also had a good view like along the home straight where you could get right up against the track as well as some good general admission on that hairpin as well. But I mean, it was a handful of like grass spots and in the rain, it was really shitty because they're all like sloped areas. So these poor people were like just slipping and sliding in the mud, I'm sure. So it was good to oh, have Jesus. They, yeah. They basically sent Perez on a nature walk to get back to the freaking pit lane. So I'm not surprised to hear that you should have brought your freaking hiking boots <laughs> as a fan. I thought he was going to fall into the water. Yeah. I mean, all in the, the whole like Island is super cool though. I mean, from a, from a venue standpoint, it was awesome. You had great views of the city. You could see the river, you could see the, the, um, whatever the pool area where they would do probably like rowing races, that kind of thing. So, I mean, overall, like from a, from a venue standpoint, it was really cool. I don't think they had quite as many of the like the pit simulation stuff on sure. on property as Miami did because they didn't have the space. I think more of that was actually in the city, but they had like the whole Red Bull stage that that was like the DJ that they amplified during the gaps in between the races. And there was some stuff there in like the monster area. But beyond that, it was relatively limited outside of selling all the merchandise and like food venues. Did they have monitors up in front of the major grandstand areas to show like action from other parts of the track was that pretty common i think in particular like the the turn one two area and the the hairpin area had screens for all of those grandstands and so but look you can see kind of what's happening you couldn't one the the audio wasn't loud enough to hear really what they were saying and two half of it was in that's exactly and half of it was in french and was in french <laughs> in quebec so like i didn't know what the hell that guy was saying but um and then qualifying was like particularly bad because you want to see where the time stack up but it was all microscopic and so i had to ask the guy next to me with binoculars who could like zoom in on the times to see so definitely bring binoculars but the other thing is even the locals didn't have great data service because there's way too many people and so i was hoping i could listen to the f1 app at the same time as watching but between my data and just the the multitude of people you, you couldn't access anything so we we sent you sent me a video at some point on Saturday that looked like it was filmed on a Motorola Razor from like 2008. <laughs> like I, it was so granulated I couldn't even tell that you were at a racetrack. I think I, I, I <laughs> so so I believe you. <laughs> and I think that's because it had failed on submission as iMessage. So I just I was like so eager to send it to you that I sent it as a as a text, <laughs> and so clearly that that failed. Yeah. Yeah, you, you might as well have like acted it out to a courier and gotten him to show up at my door and like recreate the scene in person. <laughs> what again? Given me a better, a clearer message of where you were and what was going on. But look, that was that was Friday and Saturday. The ferry ride was like just a really cool vibe to get on a boat and like head to the track, especially if you did. They serve alcohol on the boat. I'll pay- <laughs> 
some people had actually asked about that because they were like, I thought they used to serve like liquor on this boat. And they were like, no, there was like a new Canadian law. So the nanny state, of that course. That sounds about like Justin Trudeau. Yeah, the nanny yeah. state uh, strikes again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now that you've brought up the nanny state, give me your overall assessment of the quality of the Canadian racing fan. You know, as an American racing fan who's very well educated to be able to do such an assessment. <laughs> what? How do you rate the quality of the Canadian fan? And also, you mentioned the the Stroll Grandstand. What say you of the Latifi Grandstand? Was that was that just like the back of the Mexican food stand? Like a couple people were huddled in hiding to share in their fandom of Latifi. The Latifi Grandstand was actually in the middle of the lake in the island that you could go take a <laughs> swim if you actually cared that much. <laughs> um, well, look, real quick on, on so we'll, we should get to Sunday because that was honestly the highlight, being amongst the, yeah. the fans not on track. But um, look, you know me as a, an, an introvert and somebody who generally despises people. I have to say, one, the city of Montreal was amazing. Coming from, from Philadelphia after the last few years, I was shocked how pristine and clean the city was, albeit a lot of the roads leading into the city were equally as shitty. And with my incredibly hard suspension, it was a bit of a pain driving around there, but the city was amazing. And as much as I can find, uh, you know, make humor out of the smallest character flaws of people, as you well know, look, the, the French Canadians were awesome people, multiple nights out, like having dinner. I think I made more friends in the weekend in Montreal than I have four years of living in Philadelphia. So um, <laughs> the people across the board were awesome, but cool. I will say at the track, I did have a few interesting observations in my people watching. Um, Here we go. First and, Here we go. <laughs> first and foremost, one observation. If you're going to wear team gear, I think as a rule, one item is sufficient. I saw several people who had like, in that day, gotten the hat, the shirt, and the jacket. Admittedly, many of them were Red Bull fans. And look, like, you look ridiculous. What are you, on the fucking team? Like, just get your one piece and be done. Like, you're not impressing anyone. Now, I do think there are some exceptions to that rule. People who had pieces of gear from multiple teams, you could tell there was, a, like, an evolution in their fandom. Maybe they followed one driver. That I support. But the guy who, like, decked out all in one, like, current year gear, you're a fool and nobody's impressed. Um, <laughs> number two, um, as I guess as a... Oh, man, we've got a numbered list. Oh, dude, we have a handful of observations. I do... One thing I do love on the positive is I love, like, the families or group of people who all had different stuff on, like, different teams for each person because... I think that's something unique that you get with F1 that you don't really get with other teams, right? Or like other sports, right? Like in American football or wherever, it, it, it's based on like where you're from. Your whole family will like love the Eagles, right? But they're like, you'd see a group with Aston Martin, a McLaren, a Red Bull gear. And you just know that they had, had they love different personalities. They intentionally wanted to find someone different that they liked. And I just think that's a cool dynamic that people like, as we talked about last week, embrace that, that more like personality driver driven, um, culture. So I, I love that. Mm -hmm. Um, all right, back to the negatives. I went on a rain day. Look, if you bring an, uh, an umbrella, you're an asshole. Um, be a <laughs> fucking gentleman. If you can buy a $500 ticket or like a $200 ticket, 
get a fucking weatherproof jacket with a hood. Suck it up, you know? Um, <laughs> there was a number of people who, one, walking around had not only, like, personal umbrellas, but golf umbrellas and taking up, like, the entirety of a fucking walkway. Like, you're an animal. Also, when you're sitting in the sands, and it's like, I had to hold this... That's... I had to hold this guy's... big no-no. Yeah, I had to hold this guy's umbrella, like off of my lap because it was dripping onto me this fucking guy wore a suede jacket and had an umbrella and (laughs) you're just like an asshole to the max so after me like literally forcibly moving his umbrella away from me he finally got the picture and like closed it when qualifying started so i felt a bit vindicated at that point um and lastly when it comes to wearing gear for the rain these people who, and now, mind you, it is Canada, and Hamilton was sporting his finest Canadian tuxedo on his way to the track before the race. But people who wear jeans when they know it's going to rain, you're fucking psychos. Get some, like, proper either, like, waterproof or, like, synthetic pants that dry quickly. I can't tell you the number of people who are wearing jeans that day. Just unbelievable. And then, I think, lastly, the thing that I heard was unbelievable terrible fan takes and i i think the two that stood out and i wonder like is this how we sound when we talk i i have to think we do so you know lump us in with this group probably but i think the two that stood out the most were one after qualifying i heard both of these one was wow i think mick schumacher's doing a lot better this year i'm like on what fucking basis have you come to that conclusion outside of literally what you just watched in the last like hour there was nothing else this season that would justify that perspective. And, and, the one that, and the one that I really loved was after qualifying, standing at the top of stands, I was getting some good pictures of the city, and I heard, you know, I don't know why Sky Broadcasting doesn't hire Buxton. I mean, he is absolutely great. He's just so informative. And I thought, what a fucking idiot you must be if you're getting your, like, technical perspectives from will buxton he's like i think paul dressed is okay but and i thought i just i had to stop listening because it was just so ass and i'm like yeah will buxton has the informative takes over the actual race driver um dude you have the <laughs> biggest axe to grow with will buxton i just don't get it look i think he's a good hype man i think he's a good oh my god i think he's a good broadcaster he brings like the casual like excitement but i'm not gonna put his perspective over over paul deresta or like jolene palmer by any stretch of the yeah. imagination so canadian fans short on takes but the the one saving grace that I will give you is I, I inquired about to every person that I could find that would talk to me what they thought about Latifi and Stroll. And the universal opinion was nobody is a fan. Yes. Yes. That's that's very that is admirable self-awareness from the Canadian fan base. There was admirable. there was nearly zero fandom, almost no oh, William yes. support. Of the limited Aston Martin support there was, I have to assume it was predominantly for for Vettel. Um, but yeah, like in the bar on Saturday, talking to the guys, I was like, "So what's what's the take here?" And they it quickly devolved into like all of the stories they heard about like Stroll showing up to his karting races in a helicopter, like landing in the parking lot. So suffice it to say, nobody was a fan. But, I mean, as you can imagine, all the big teams had the most support. But Williams, Haas, pretty far down the list in terms of overall fandom. But you did see a lot of Alpine, which I think was probably part Alonzo, but part 
um, the French influence. part the French influence for Ocon. And so there was a number of people with like Gasly gear, but largely it was the top four or five teams that, that people supported. Who was the prevailing driver? If you had to pick one who had the best representation, I mean, it was unsurprisingly, it was Max and, and Mercedes. I think part, partly Mercedes just has the best looking gear. I'll admit like, they have like they cool colors, yeah, cool variation. The baseline is like really clean and, and it's like badass looking, like the white and the black. But yeah, overall, it was it was Pro Max, which uh, a little bit of recency bias there. But the one observation I will make from being on the track that is a bit more technical in nature was the the sounds of the cars and how different those were, and the observation of Red Bulls like team to team. Yeah, well, I would say engine supplier like engine supplier. So Red Bull was on one end of the spectrum as the, as the quietest car. And this is coming from somebody whose last like open wheel race was as a kid in kart racing, which is akin to, well, actually I went to IndyCar race not too long ago, vastly louder. Like I was, I thought I was going to need to find somewhere to get earplugs. I was almost like disappointed how quiet the cars were. I had the same observation in Miami, actually. They were quieter than I expected. Like, I saw people for, with earplugs, and I was like, what? Like, what is the need here? There's... You, you could have been standing literally on the other side of the concrete barrier and not needed earplugs. Well, the, the grainy video that you couldn't tell that I was at the race, I was literally in one of the general admission areas that ran right along the a little bit of the start of the home straight, so that maybe they weren't as loud as maximum sound. But, yeah, I was standing right there, no need for earplugs. Honda engine or Red Bull powertrain, quietest overall, like almost shockingly quiet. On the other end of the spectrum was Mercedes engine. Absolutely loud, just sounded like full throttle. I don't know if it's higher RPMs or what, but they just sound incredibly loud and more aggressive. Ferrari was maybe one step down from that. And then I think the the, the Renault engines on the Alpines were closer to the Red Bull end of the spectrum of a bit more subdued but but certainly still louder than than red bull well like anything it's probably less to do with the actual engine and more to do with the exhaust design right like and some of that's probably dictated by the arrow on the top of the car the fin in the back i don't know yeah it's a good question and and i haven't looked it into enough so something to something to peek at but but yeah it was just an interesting observation of you don't really pick that up on driver cams on the on the race broadcast but yeah a lot a lot there so, so yeah, man. And lastly, I'll close with Saturday or I'm sorry, Sunday. So yep. went to like downtown area where they had the street blocked off and they had all of the official like team gear. That's where they did like the change the tire, the simulation and all of the Heineken, like 0.0. Like, first off, can I ask you, what is the fucking point of that? People ask me like, Hey, you want this non-alcoholic Heineken? And I'm like, no, I have a Camelback with water. Like, why the oh, fuck I, would I? I've never even heard. Like, why would I? I've never even heard of that. Yeah, that's the shit that's like advertised all over the track. What is with the non-alcoholic Heineken? Who is drinking this? I don't. I don't know what target market Heineken thinks they're tapping into. But like, what? Who? Who looked at Odell's? Like Odell's? But what is it? Odell's or Odell's? I don't even know. Like yeah, business model. Know. Maybe somebody. In, maybe somebody in Eastern Europe is considering prohibition. I have no I idea. Know, but it's it's ridiculous. But yeah, so I ended up like getting a getting a spot at a bar there. I showed up. I asked them, and they were like, "Yeah, probably about an hour." I walked around. I went to a Canada Goose store because it was there. They have like a 25 below like room that you can walk in to like test out Canada Goose oh, here. Yeah. And I didn't know that. So I like tried on a jacket and I had shorts on and I'm like, well, this is pretty fucking cool. Um, 
but then proceeded. That's so excessive. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have to have that if you're going to spend twenty five hundred dollars on a jacket. I mean, geez. I mean, geez, yeah. The least they can do is like allow me to test it in the harshest of conditions. Please step into this room that's significantly colder than anywhere you'll ever be on Earth. <laughs> but yes, pay twenty five hundred dollars for the jacket. Yeah, yeah. I was saying, it was, it, I, I almost like ignorantly bought it because I was like in Canada and like I don't know, I was feeling vicarious. But then I was like, wait, I don't. No, I <laughs> then like the, <laughs> cool yeah, I walked out of there. I'm like, I'm good. Um, but yeah, I went into like this old, like Irish pub, sat down at the bar with this next to this guy from Boston. So first off, like two thirds of the bar was blocked by the bartender who was like, oh, my buddies are coming, but you can sit next to this guy from Boston who was like a retired ex, like head of HR for multiple companies. He proceeded to buy like Jameson with syrup shots because he was like infatuated by like this Canadian like twist on a Jameson shot, I guess was like some syrup. Um, but he proceeded to like buy like five shots for the bar before the race had even started. And I swear to God, dude. So I was like talking to him. It was a great time. He had paddock passes that he was alone too. So he ended up like scalping them or selling them to scalpers. He was like, yeah, they gave me like six grand cash. I'm like, Jesus. Okay. Um, <laughs> dude. More syrup shots. on yeah, this he, guy. he was sending them around. Dude, he proceeded, like, I looked over, like, lap three. <laughs> He's fucking nodded off. He was, like, asleep <laughs> at the bar. <laughs> Just passed out. <laughs> I'm like, dude, I thought I was a lightweight. I'm half a glass into wine right now, and I'm hammered. And this guy was fucking done. So that was a highlight. Um, but, yeah, man, it was great at the bar. Watching the race with the fans was, like, a cool way to do it if you don't want to buy tickets. So, they they did it right in Montreal, man. It was a good it was a good time. This is great, man. You've already eclipsed your F word total for the first nine episodes of the season just in this first little intro segment. So I'm 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 freaking loving it. This is great. hell yeah. We're just rolling. Hell yeah. All right. Should we turn to the race? That's great. Let's turn to the race. So you you kick us off with the uh, the bullet points of the race recap, and then we'll get into a couple of hot topics before we go team by team. Heck yeah. So look, uh, good weekend, a mixed weekend. You had FP3 and qualifying in the rain, which led to a very mixed grid. You had Haas, Alonzo, Vettel, and Joe all in the top 10, partially aided by the likes of Sonoda, Leclerc taking engine penalties, and Perez just not making the cut. Um, so that made for an interesting start of the race, and overall... But ultimately, all of that led for not for basically all of those teams, um, you know, with Haas dropping down out of the top 10, Alonzo getting a penalty late, dropping him to ninth, Vettel out of the points, Joe out of the points. Uh, or no, Joe actually was in the points at, because of the Alonzo penalty in eighth. Um, yep. But you had some tragedy for Perez as he was trying to climb up the grid early in the race with a DNF. Ultimately, triumph for Max, leading all the way holding off signs after the the safety car. Leclerc made good progress, but it just was too little too late getting held up in a DRS train uh, to pass the Mercedes. And then shockingly, uh, or maybe not so much, but Hamilton returned to podium while Russell finished in the top five yet again every single race this season. So unbelievable, Mr. Dude. Consistency prevails. Uh, but despite all of that action throughout the weekend, I think the biggest excitement, the most controversy happening off track, which I know you are more than eager, hot under the collar, even some might say to get to, oh, um, with the FIA's technical direction on, uh, porpoising. Now, just for a brief overview, 
the technical direction related to porpoising, not a rule change, not in effect for this weekend, but in summary, for those who may not be as familiar, um, ultimately the plan is they intend to, after much, uh, after the, the, the theatrics of Baku and Mercedes and Hamilton's hurt back, the FIA stepping in saying they're going to monitor porpoising using the accelerometers beneath the driver's seats to look at the G for the vertical G forces. And if drivers exceed some yet to be defined limit, given any, you know, any particular weekend, they would ask a team to raise their ride height by 10 millimeters, which I understand is pretty significant. Um, also part of the technical direction was a, an allowance for teams to in, introduce a second stay into the floor, which many teams have introduced a single stay, if not all of them, but the second one to provide additional f- stability to the floor, which miraculously Mercedes in their ever wise anticipation came to the early practices on Friday with a floor with a second stay. And given the protest of other teams, they actually removed for the rest of the weekend. But um, a lot to be worked through. Nothing's final yet. The FIA is still looking for direction from other teams. Um, but but a lot of, of conversations, debate going on behind the scenes. Uh, Graham, I know you were hot last weekend on the, the FIA's, uh, or I'm sorry, Mercedes, you know, was it theatrics? Were they influencing the FIA? I mean, give me your perspective uh, this weekend, as I know you weren't at the race. You had a lot more time to focus on the, the drama unfolding uh, on the news feeds. What, what say you this weekend? Yeah, look, if there was a roll of tinfoil within reach, I would take a sheet, make a hat, I'd put it on. My ten- my, my temptation to be a conspiracy theorist last week has only grown mostly because of the antics of Toto Wolf and some of the rumors that I'm hearing from the team principals meeting that occurred in Canada, which apparently was pretty uh, <coughs> animated. What is uh, what did you hear from the team principals and and what's driving your your conspiracy theory? So for well before that, so first three. So just to recap, the technical directive wasn't really directive in any sense. It was more of a proposal that they put out without any level of specificity or backing to get team reactions. It included approval of a second stay, a quantitative measure that they didn't specify the metric for, for the amount of vertical G-forces from oscillation. And then the third thing was a qualitative measure, which was the amount of scraping on the, whatever the hell they call that plate under the The car. The plank, which is a wooden plank, which they measure to, they'll assess the weight change, right, to see how much it's grinded against the... And how damaged it is. Yeah, and how damaged it is. So it's a qualitative and a quantitative measure, and then an additional rule change to help with basically the symptoms of porpoising. Um, look, at the end of the day, I think that we got to call it both ways. Every Mercedes fan and every Christian Horner opponent who complains about him playing the politics of the FIA and a Formula One in general to benefit the performance of his team. I think you've got to eat all the crow you gave him last season plus some for the shit that Toto Wolf is trying to pull right now. There are nine teams. There are nine teams that think that the FIA playing a proactive role intra-season to change regulations to combat porpoising in response to driver safety. There are nine teams that think that that is unnecessary. And there is one team 
that thinks it's necessary. Which should literally, which is Mercedes, which should literally be all you need to know about the fact that this is completely self-interested from Toto Wolf. It is a, I said it so many times last week, it is a problem that Mercedes has the ability to solve and they are trying and they're lobbying all the way down to their drivers. Oh, I'm not saying Lewis wasn't hurt in the car in Baku, but overplaying the the level of pain they're feeling from porpoising. But seriously, though, have you ever hurt your back significantly? Do you really think that he wasn't going to be hurt this week if he was having trouble getting out of the car last week? Come on. Like, he had to have been overplaying it. He had to have been. I don't know. He, I, given the salary of Angela Cullen, I think she might work some magic that no, nobody else possibly no. can. So had, to be over, had to be overplaying it. I got the same vibes as I get when I watch Premier League soccer and see guys writhing in pain like they've just had their leg amputated from getting just barely clipped by a defender. I, same vibes. I think they were freaking flopping and faking it. And I think it's all based upon them just wanting to have some type of advantageous intra-year rule change that benefits the fact that they just didn't have the right aerodynamic philosophy for this car. And I I think that that is really shitty. And I don't think... I think that for the FIA to breach this veil that they have where... And Bonato, Ferrari made a great... He made this point really well in the press this week. Technical directives are not supposed to be intra-year rule changes. They are meant to clarify. It's like the difference between the legislature and the judicial system of the United States. The legislature sets law. The judicial system interprets and clarifies the law. I think it's a similar relationship between the governing body of Formula One that sets technical regulations, and then intra-year, the FIA clarifies through technical directives how teams are supposed to interpret those rules. They don't revise them intra-season, which I think would be a massive mistake. And also, the fact that Mercedes was literally ready the day the technical directive for the second stay was announced. They literally bolted it onto the car and ran it out onto the track the next morning in a way that Christian Horner and Bonato were like, yeah, if they had given us that, we would have never been able to get that ready in 24 hours. They had to have known it was coming. There's rumors about Toto Wolf's ex-personal lawyer and advisor, who now is the executive director of the FIA, maybe passed him insider information. There's some there's some shit going on, and I think what it basically is is Mercedes flexing their muscle as a political power within Formula One to try and get rule changes bent in a way that helps their relative car performance. Do I fault them? No. I understand Toto Wolf is playing his incentives. Formula One's a political sport, and I want it to be because it's more entertaining that way. But if he is successful at all, it would be a massive scar to Formula One because I don't think they should bow to the pressures to, to, to change intra-year air regulation. When every other team has been investing their R&D in an aero philosophy that works for the current rules, how are you going to just pull the rug out from underneath them? It doesn't make any sense. Sorry, that was a big rant. What are your thoughts? I, I absolutely love when you go on a rant, particularly <laughs> when it's bent conspiratorial. Uh, oh, because I feel like so I'm the massive like conspirator, so to see you... Leaning into that, welcome to the fold, my friend. But just to play devil's advocate for a moment, and and this concept Please. of I, two things: one, the idea that it was only Mercedes that were voicing a concern regarding porpoising. Now, I I agree with you in the sense that they were the ones that it was amplified within Baku. The the 
the the pain to Hamilton, the beleaguered exiting of the car. But there have been a number of drivers as well who have raised this as a concern. No, whether it be, you know, namely Gasly. I think signs have raised it. So interestingly, intra Ferrari maybe conflict of perspectives. Yeah, but, like so, how do you? How Ferrari do you that? has not sponsored. Ferrari has not sponsored that as a team. I would say Gasly's an easy guy to poach because he's having a terrible year. I think you can clearly see line of sight. Like, Sainz has complained about it, but he hasn't gone to the extent that Mercedes has, which is to to call it a, an issue for driver safety and something that the FIA has to step in and solve. Mm-hmm. So, no, nobody with pace is complaining about this, which is literally all you need to know. It's all you need to know, which means that if you're fast enough, all of a sudden, magically, your back is healed. And people don't complain anymore. Oh, man, that's crazy. Like, that is literally all you need to know. That's all you need to know. And if the FIA validates that by actually changing the rules, it will set a really bad precedent for that type of stuff to come into play intra-year. And if they thought the lobbying from team principals was bad intra-year, it'll get a whole lot worse after people figure out that you can be successful influencing car development in this manner within a season. So so what one thing I just thought of as you're talking about Gasly and his uh you know unimpressive year so far. You think maybe uh Gasly was co-opted by Mercedes to say, "Hey, you, no. you don't have a shot." No. Let's be honest. I don't have any evidence of that. I mean, look, he doesn't have really a shot at Red Bull. Perez signed up. He's clearly not the chosen one. Like once Hamilton leaves, maybe we have a spot for you at Mercedes if you uh help amplify this issue of porpoising. What say you? No. No? That he will not be there. He will not be their first choice at Mercedes. You don't think so? Um No. Unless well, unless they really think Russell's the chosen one. And no, no, no. So Russell's the know. Russell is the number two right now. He's the heir apparent. But at some point, yeah, Hamilton yeah. will leave. They will need another driver. Do you not think Gasly no, fits that bill no. well? You I don't think he- I think they'll dip in I think they'll dip into their driver development program. Well, unless you know what, actually I mean they don't have a history of picking some new guy off the off the bench. They like to see a seasoned well-established driver as they did with with Hamilton, right? Hamilton had a good track record before they brought him in. Yeah, they like Nick DeVries, but uh, he probably is not experienced enough. I mean, maybe if they think Russell is the chosen one and they just want a safe, reliable kind of Botas, if they're looking for a Botas, then yes, they may go for Gasly. I think it's a fair point. But back to one last question on the – and this is actually a serious question because I am a bit confused about with the with the way the teams have handled the FIA rule change on the technical directive, as I interpret that technical directive, I don't see how it's bad for Red Bull. I can see how it's bad for Ferrari because they're a team who has pace with porpoising. So they don't want to be in a situation where they're forced to reduce their porpoising because they have pace. So why ruin a good thing? Red Bull doesn't porpoise. And they have pace. So why should they care if a technical directive puts guardrails? I can see why they might be mad about the stay, the second stay. Why should they care about the other two directives, though? Because they're not porpoising anyway or not going to violate it. And if anything, it actually forces Mercedes to raise their ride height, which should make them slower. So I actually am not sure why Christian Horner is as mad doesn't change how I feel about what Toto's doing, but I'm not actually totally sure I understand why Christian Horner is as mad as he is. I get why Bonato's mad. I don't get why Christian Horner's mad. 
So good question. I will turn this back on you. So be prepared for that. Uh-oh. I fully agree with you on the second stay point and the fact that if that was their end game and all, it makes sense because they were ready for it. And that's it, right? And and that would help them solve the solution, at least insofar as they have this sort of zero side pod, a lot more reliance on the floor to be able to like provide some of the downforce dynamic. I get that. But what I would ask you is, given your emphasis on the on the the conspiracy that Mercedes is colluding, right? The uh, as any good conspirator must face, it is the burden of proof. I have to ask you, Red Bull and their their protestations aside, because uh, Ferraris are certainly justified, right? They're doing well despite porpoising. Why would Mercedes make this a bigger deal, emphasize this as a necessary change, given the fact that, as you just said, they would be the ones who would be forced to raise their ride height in an instance that their car exceeded the vertical G forces per the the FIA's monitoring. Like what, what don't didn't couldn't they have anticipated that they would have actually been one, the ones facing this issue on the receiving yeah. end of the FIA scrutiny? But it may not be about Red Bull. Like it, look at the end of the day, they might they might not be able to touch Red Re- Bull. For well, hang on, Red Bull aside though, from a Mercedes perspective, you're saying they're the ones colluding. They're the ones pushing a rule change. They might be trying to harm Ferrari. They might be trying to harm Ferrari more than any team because Ferrari has a car that porpoises and has pace. And so I would imagine that, at, you know, let's... So, so you think off, this is purely Mercedes, a challenge of, like, the number two? Like, almost in essence, they've conceded first place to Red Bull and they're just trying to, to climb where possible? Well, and I mean, certainly, I don't Ferrari know they, porpoises an extraordinary amount. When you watch the driver cam, I mean... Even even the regular race video, I mean, they are porpoising terribly. The best case scenario for Mercedes this season is to beat Ferrari and then basically moonshot to try and beat Red Bull on on reliability. So they're, they're only... Because, I mean, if you look at the constructors, they're not that far back. So their only hope is basically get to a place where you can beat Ferrari on merit, get track position, and then hope that with grid penalties and engines and them being the best team from a reliability standpoint, they can somehow catch Red Bull due to Red Bull's own mechanical errors in the second half of the year. I mean, they're 125 points back in constructors. I get that it's a lot of points, but they also are far and away the best team from a reliability standpoint. Agreed. And I think if anyone is not taking grid penalties in the last five races of the year, it's going to be Mercedes, which if they can get their car fast enough, they may be able to win on the basis of track position and a bit of a head start. I'm not saying I think that's likely. I'm just saying if I'm sitting there considering the options at Team Mercedes, I may not be worried about trying to harm Red Bull at this point because I think that their car philosophy just works. Like, (laughs) if anything, I'm just thinking, what can I learn from that philosophy, not how can I set them back from where they're at today? I don't think Mercedes has any control over that. I think they just have to hope that reliability bites Red Bull. But to me, they, they they can't influence that. So I don't know that they would try. Interesting. So you think this is largely a play at Ferrari, at least if you were to to increase, you know, rewards over them, that's tens of millions of dollars in in prize money beating them. And, and then that, hope Red Bull implodes. And that puts you in first. 
That's the only shot they've got realistically to win the constructors. I also think that they're doing it because they know that the that they may they may suspect that the balance of the car that they will create on the average will suit Lewis better. That's another theory I have. I don't know how well founded it is. How so? But I don't know. I'm just suspecting that however they've got the car set up today with the porpoising, clearly George is figuring out a better way to drive it. I think Lewis is probably you know, I saw something in some driver quoted this week just how much Lewis hates to lose to his teammate I mean he's obviously fighting hard on track but he is probably also lobbying internally with the team and Toto as hard as possible to get that car built preferentially towards him throughout the year so all of that probably is factoring into Toto's posture here but anyway I just think it's total bullshit and if it actually leads to meaningful influence on the rules and helps Mercedes it's just a it's a disaster in my book, but anyway, we don't have to beat that horse anymore. I'd- no, absolutely. This is the. I think. I think seeing you engage in conspiracy theories is. I've had more fun in this last thirty minutes than at any point in you know maybe my last four years of existence. So I uh, I love seeing you embrace the dark side. I mean, look, I, I do think it is interesting. I think I think it was interesting seeing the the timeline play out in terms of the FIA introducing this Mercedes coming immediately with a, a new floor uh, with yeah, the, I mean, the two on, stays. Man. I mean, as most of the team said, it would be a much longer time frame for them to engineer one, the stays manufacture, produce mail, just the, the shipping alone would take almost longer than, than Mercedes was able to, to turn this around. And so, I mean, what should the other teams pursue? Do you think this, the the FIA direction aside, do you think the that that time dynamic? Like, do you think the other teams should encourage an FIA investigation regarding Mercedes and the proximity with you know Total Wolf's like legal representation, who is now the secretary, you know, a, a executive at the FIA, or or is that a, no, a bridge I, too I, far? Time better spent is just to ensure that it doesn't actually get minted into real permanent technical regulation. That's where they would I would focus if I was them. I wouldn't try and assign guilt or blame and find a paper trail in places where it likely doesn't exist. Who cares? At the end of the day, all the teams really need to know is that it's not going to lead to a permanent shift in their car development that disadvantages them. Um, so that's what I would focus on if I was if I was a principal. Insofar as like prioritization, I do agree with you, but the 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 political minded part of me kind of wishes that. Other teams do push this as a as a controversy. I mean, I know there have been several in the past. I mean, one of the big the big conspiracies that that surfaces as a result of all of this was just Mercedes' ability to adapt the rule changes, given the the whole hybrid era and the fact that they had a design and that positioned them for you know seven years of dominance subsequently. So, I mean, look, I I agree with you. The priority should be on rallying the teams to reject this, but if they can simultaneously pursue a, an investigation in terms of the rapid turnaround to Mercedes, why not? Right. Or, or is there fear that that sullies the, the broader brand of F1 and diminishes, right? Like this is the interesting dynamics of F1 is there's competition within the teams, but yet there's also a collective, there's a collective uh, desire for the the broader perception of the sport to be positive, so that the 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 value of the brand overall is 
is lifted. And so do you think that plays into the the sort of politics? Nah, I think I think when you're talking about brand, you've elevated it to too far of a place. That's perception. I think it's just a matter of preventing noise in politics, which is entertaining and should be there and shouldn't go away. We we need it to stay there. We don't need it to become influential on the actual governance of the sport. That's the line we can't cross. I'm fine for Toto to bitch and moan all he wants as long as it doesn't actually influence the governance of the sport. So that's that's the line for me. I don't I, I don't care that it exists. I just care that it's impactful. That's it. All right. Well, well, one question I do want to pose to you, uh, given given some of the data that I've seen, and and look, I haven't personally like validated these things. So grain of salt, but. Mm-hmm. Did see some interesting data and visualizations shared on the the F one technical Reddit that did show some of the the porpoising data akin to what the FIA would be monitoring going forward, given this technical direction that showed from mm-hmm. Spain in particular, Mercedes was actually the lowest on the list in Spain, yep. while the likes of what McLaren, or uh, I'm sorry, Alpine, Haas. And and what was the third one? Was it was it uh, Aston Martin demonstrated far higher porpoising? Now other teams like Red Bull, Ferrari, um, Alfa Romeo were lower, but Mercedes was at the absolute bottom when it came to the most recent, genuine sort of traditional racetrack, a non-street track. So. How do you think that factors into the the calculus? I mean, I would imagine that supports your your conspiratorial beliefs that Mercedes and seeing themselves on the tracks most akin to what you will see for the remainder of the season, more traditional racetracks throughout Europe, etc. Mercedes is actually in a decent position when it comes to vertical acceleration demonstrating porpoising. So how, how does that factor into your conspiracy? I, I don't know. I think we're going to know after Silverstone, though. Because Silverstone is buttery smooth, built for purpose racetrack, high speed turns. We'll know after Silverstone. And I I bet you if Mercedes shows up and has lead car race pace, they ain't going to be talking about this shit much anymore. Mm. And to the degree they continue to, they're going to be doing it just to save face. They got noisy on this in Monaco. They got noisy about it in Baku. I think it's a very short-sighted just convenience argument for them. I think if they show up with lead car race pace in Silverstone, you won't hear as much about it. Now, to be clear, I don't think they're going to show up with lead car pace in Silverstone, but they might show up with lead car minus a tenth per lap, which that'll, that dog will hunt. So I still think either way, you'll hear about less, hear about it less. Cause I agree with you. They were significantly improved in Barcelona. Uh, and if anything, the package that Silverstone is going to ask for, will be even more in Mercedes' favor than Barcelona was because you have even less low-speed chicanes. So I think I think they might be okay. No, it's an interesting take. And I, and I thought, you know, watching the driver cam of Russell driving in Barcelona, it just looked like – like I, I don't know if I said this after that or if it was a different episode, but it just looked like he was driving a futuristic car, right? Like yeah. if, if you're going to – I love the concept of – like taking more natural designs and incorporating it into to modern things, right? Again, I said the Japanese bullet train was inspired by the Kingfisher bird, right? And there's ample examples of that, right? The modern airplane wings with the the sort of tips that are uh, tilted up 
are from, you know, you look at birds and their wings, the, the feathers are lifted up. And so them taking designs from a, a fighter jet, I do think will ultimately long-term in this generation of car serve them very well. And so I, to your point of what this looks like over the Silverstone and the next, you know, cycle of traditional racetracks in Europe, I'm fascinated, fascinated to see how this will play out. I think it will serve them very well, especially as Ferrari has struggled in tire degradation. Um, they've, they've shown quality in terms of being able to put together a high downforce package that shows speed in high demanding turns. It'll be really fascinating to see how the season progresses in more traditional racetracks with high speed turns. And I think Mercedes is well positioned to do quite well. And as you said, Russell looks like a, like he understands where the car is going. We'll get to this, but also Hamilton's been forced to be the pre like premier developer of the car and test subject of new concepts. So we'll see how that plays out, but, but you're right. It'll be fascinating to see what happens in, in Silverstone and beyond. Russell second in the driver's championship is not improbable. It's not. I mean, think about it. He's only... 15 points off Leclerc is, how many, and 18 15 points, points off Leclerc. Yeah, and I mean, okay, so right now they're roughly a quarter of a second a lap off the lead car pace as of Canada. If they get that down to a tenth and Leclerc's taking basically a grid penalty every third race for Even power Even every units, fifth race. Every fifth race. And Mercedes never does. I, I I'd give Russell a pretty decent shot at second in the drivers. I really would. I I'm again. I'm very just not here for everything Toto is doing from a messaging standpoint. But from a trajectory of team performance, there's a lot to like at Mercedes. And I, I will hear an argument for best driver lineup on the grid. I I think it's one that can be made pretty easily. So. After this last weekend, I'll be, although as as both being Red Bull fans and being very high on the potential of Sergio Perez, admittedly, it was awfully disappointing. You know, DNF in race aside, he did not deliver in qualifying. Russell nope. did. did Hamilton did. That's why they yep. were 3-4 in the race. Even if Perez and reliability was not an issue, would he have passed Hamilton? Would he have passed per, or, uh, Russell? I doubt it. And so, agreed. so agreed. Very much in the conversation of best driver lineup. I mean, undeniable, right? At this point, in terms of manufacturer uh, reliability. So, yeah. I mean, given the proximity that Russell has to Perez in second place, down seventeen points. Not a not a crazy prediction. So, can you fault? Toto for doing absolutely everything in his team power to to drive the success of his team. No, but as you've said, this is the thing that makes F1 more fascinating versus other sports, right? Like this this kind of intrigue, this this mix of polit, you know, the race itself, the the technical dynamic plus the political maneuvering is it makes F1 absolutely unique to any other sport. And that's why we're here. All right, with that, let's get into the teams, and let's really, we're like, we set records every week for being overtime. 
but it's good. It's a good conversation. So let's let's just cherry pick the teams where we feel like there's really some stuff to talk about. All in favor of totally ditching Williams. Here, here. Here, here. I mean, Albon, decent weekend. Latifi, as expected in basically last place. So uh, Williams, steady as she goes. Should we move on to Haas? Because Haas was far more interesting this weekend. I see some threads in the show notes of you potentially maybe want to give Mick Schumacher some shine, and I'd like to I'd like to be here to shit all over all of that. So please ask your <laughs> questions. Yes, please. Um, so look, both drivers made it into the top 10 in qualifying three, started top six, five and six together. But at the end of the day, close of race, left with zero points overall. Basically left even with Alvatari and Aston Martin on the day, who only had one point, but they did lose out to both Alpha, uh, Romeo, and Alpine. Um, you know, Magnussen on the weekend qualified fifth, se- finished 17th primarily because of um, the FIA intervention in what was some front wing damage given some first lap contact both on, I think it was primarily leading into the turn three, four chicane. Look, Hamilton admittedly pushed Magnuson a bit wide at the end of the straight, but then Magnuson sort of did this weird excessive turn in going through the chicane into Hamilton's back tire, I think is what ultimately caused the damage. Ocon came over the radio admitting that he saw some, some damage on Magnuson's front wing that led him to being forced into the pit to get a front wing change basically ruined his race because, you know, not only did it, it cause a longer pit stop, but then Haas was like slow as shit on the pit. I mean, they looked like they were just casually changing his front wing. Like it was a practice session and, and that put him in last place and, and ended his race. But before we get to, to Schumacher, what was your take on sort of the FIA's decision here or the stewards decision more right in, in calling him into the pits when, you know, you saw a decision last week with Sonoda where some gaffer tape was busted out and he was perfectly fine to roll on for the rest of the, the rest of the race. Did you think that was the right call? I got to tell you, thank God these drivers wear gloves because if they didn't, and one of these guys had a hangnail, I think they'd bring him into the pits. <laughs> like, like, this is like completely out of control that you can have a car with external body damage that the team who is evaluating data from like a thousand fucking sensors on the car, the team says there is no aer- significant aerodynamic downside to this damage to merit pitting this person, which means that over the course of this entire race, we basically don't think you're going to lose 20 seconds collectively, cumulatively to merit bringing you in and repairing it. It's basically what they're saying. So you're good. Stay out. In that scenario, there is no world where the FIA should listen to Ocon's little bitchy voice on team radio, scared that a piece of carbon fiber is going to fly off and him in the crash helmet and say, oh, we should probably bring Magnuson in in case his piece of carbon fiber that's about a six-inch by six-inch plank comes off and somehow turns into a nuclear bomb in midair and kills the driver behind him. I think it is the most paranoid, overreach use of the excuse of in the name of safety that you can possibly have in racing. There is a bigger risk 
of a fucking rock getting kicked up out of a gravel pit and literally hitting a driver in the Adam's apple or some shit like that head on and injuring him than something coming off of a... Like, I, like, I, I just can't understand how we have just implicitly decided that any loose piece on a car for any reason is now a hazard to every car behind. Like, when did that become an agreed-upon rule in F1, and now you've taken it out of the team's hands to make a technical assessment inside a race, which is not easy to do, by the way, to either keep a car on the track or pit it. You've totally taken that out of their hands with these types of decisions. And I think if a team wants to run a damaged car, what would have happened if Magnussen had been in the top three lead cars and this been in the last quarter of the race? Would they have done the same thing? Or would they have circumstantially folded to the significance of of where he was in the race? I think it would have been the latter. And I think that that by itself is evidence that what they did was total bullshit. Like, it should be your decision as a team to weigh performance degradation from damage in an accident as long as the car is still safe to drive against the the optionality to pit. Full stop. Total joke. They did it. They thought about doing it for Sonoda. They did it for Magnuson. I think this needs to, this is bad. It should go away. It should not be part of the sport at all. Clearly, there's a line, right? If the halo is cracked and flapping above the fucking intake, yeah, pull them into the pits. But like, Jesus, man, like we got to have like a threshold of materiality for car damage. And I don't think a damaged in plate meets that threshold. Oh, by the way, which race was it last year that Hamilton? It was Jetta. He raced the whole damn race with a broken in plate. And nobody said anything because he's Lewis fucking Hamilton and he was fighting for the lead. Again, back to my previous point. It had nothing to do with actual safety. Which is what drives me insane. All right, I'm sorry, I'm done. No, right, please. So it's such, but such bullshit. Please con- it's- continue. And and God. I'm glad you brought up the the race from previous year. Obviously, a different regime. So so there's some some justification there. But totally agree with you in the the absolute inconsistency. And albeit they're not racing for first place. I mean, look at Haas in the constructors championship. They are one point behind Aston Martin. They are now. 12 points behind AlphaTauri. And if Magnuson would have held what he had at that time, which was what, fourth, fifth, fifth place, that's 10 points. They are nearly then, yeah. they they, yep. they would have leapfrogged AlphaTauri. I'm sorry, leapfrogged Aston Martin, been on pace with AlphaTauri, and in a position now to almost move up to sixth place in Constructors' yeah. Championship up from ninth. So Hugely consequential. I'm sorry, seventh place, but yes, hugely consequential overall points very early in the season and was ultimately responsible for throwing away half of the good work that that Haas had done that whole weekend. So I think as an American team, both of us can rally behind the point that that was some bullshit, be consistent, and some damaged carbon fiber is not the end-all be-all. Agreed. Can we not hit... Mick Schumacher at nauseum at this point because I think we've spent enough time on Haas. In general, I think my takeaway is like, feel bad for you. Car didn't suit. You. Car didn't cooperate. He had better pace. I'm gonna need to see more of it. Is kind of so. This idea. weekend wasn't enough to to dispel the dispel the the uh, the criticisms. No, the criticism is based on his lack of consistency, and that necessitates that you change what's happening consistently. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's gonna take. I'm, look, I'm, I'm not saying. 
it's not a good sign, but he just you're going to need to see more of it. Yep, so. I, I agree. It was a great weekend for him early on. It, sad disappointment that they couldn't turn it into something for him at the end of the race. But um, yeah, we need more weekends of what he did on Saturday throughout the season for him to justify him having a seat going forward. Um, all right, let's turn to Aston Martin because similarly had a very fascinating weekend. I think they had a phenomenal weekend overall Weird. in both the dry and the wet conditions. You know, they they performed phenomenally well in the wet early on Saturday and then absolutely shit the bed late on Saturday, qualifying near the bottom. I mean, in FP3, Vettel was third and, you know, ultimately qualified 17th. I went back and watched his entire qualifying session he didn't do anything tremendously terrible throughout the session. He just, he didn't have the down, he didn't have the traction, didn't have pace. Didn't have pace and, and therefore, you know, failed in qualifying for both drivers starting at the back of the grid. And then, you know, um, unfortunately for Vettel early pit stop on, on his tires just before the VSC from Perez. Meanwhile, stroll outperformed because he, he went on an, a crazy long stand at 47, 48 laps on hard tires before he finally pitted. And that put him in a p- better position um, because he, he ultimately pitted under the, the Sonoda safety car. So advantageous for him while Vettel pitted multiple times before the first 20 laps of the race and, and basically doomed him to the, to the back of the grid. But um you know, what's your take on their weekend overall? Good early on, weak in qualifying, but ended in the points. I mean, modestly, plus one point. The gap between Seb and Stroll seems to be widening since they rolled out the green Red Bull at Barcelona, which I'm generally in favor of. So uh, there's that. Qualifying yeah, aside, I mean, right? Because in FP1, yeah, yeah, both yeah. drivers were in the top 10, but FP2, Vettel fourth, Stroll 12th. In the rain in FP3, Vettel third, Stroll 13th. Very different in practice, qualifying, and then the the race strategy aside. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I it, Look, it, this has happened to several teams this year, which is sometimes they find a tire window that they that works and they can't explain it. It, it, it seems that it's happened to Williams. It's happened to Mercedes. Uh, it, it's, it's weird. It's happened to McLaren. They find a tire window, and they just can't quite explain why. And so sometimes it's because the environment is different, the track temperature is different. In this case, it had something to do with the wet for Aston, and they just found a window. And, you know, I guess the most optimistic view of what happened is maybe they'll have the data on it now, and they'll be able to unpack and reverse engineer how it happened and find a way to restore that pace more predictably than it came in Canada. I don't know. Um but I, I guess one of the, my personal observations is just how much I think I would enjoy seeing Seb actually compete. And I think it's a little bit similar to the nostalgia. No, not nostalgia. It's not like I've been around sport for 10 years, but a similar to the way I feel when I see Alonzo almost put it on pole. You know, you're like, you kind of just want to see the old, like we have such a presence of new young talent between Leclerc, Verstappen, even though he's been in the car for so many years, he's still young. I think about him as young Lando and Russell. You, you kind of want to counterbalance that a little bit with like the old hand kind of occasionally still besting them. I feel that way about Alonzo. I want to feel that way about Vettel. And I also just love to see Stroll just get absolutely fucked. So, yeah. that I mean, hopefully they'll figure out what was the cause of it, be able to recreate it more predictably. But it's just hard to explain. Somehow they got a tire window and they 
it just left them at a different time of day and in different conditions. So, so to that last point of, of aspiring to see Stroll struggle, I mean, look, Stroll finished in the points. Vettel didn't. If you're about to make a case, if you're about to make a case for Stroll, I'm just saying, you might as well save your I'm breath. just saying, Stroll beat Vettel in race. You you did sit in the grandstands, didn't you? You did. <laughs> yeah, you probably you, you did. Yeah, I loved every second of it. Uh, <laughs> probably have his shirt on underneath that collar that you wearing. But but it is interesting when you look at a Williams. Like the case for Latifi is clear, and I think we're seeing the manifestation of that in the high likelihood that Piastri is in the seat next year. Admittedly, doesn't that make Lawrence Stroll's life a bit easier in justifying his son's continued position in the car. He beat Vettel. He beat a world champion, four-time world champion. How can how- one race with a lot of outside influence and circumstances that impacted the Vettel's performance? Like one race, that's just not a full story, you know. And I think that the overarching trajectory of single lap performance and race performance is that they're either developing the car towards Vettel or Vettel, Vettel's. Vettel's flat out a better driver and hasn't given up on the sport. Both are probably true. I don't know in what proportion. But either way, I'd love to see that gap wide because I just – I don't like this notion that a paid driver who doesn't deserve to be there can show up and just slot in and be competitive. I, 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 that narrative doesn't doesn't make Formula One more attractive in my eyes. So, so, so let's move on to very briefly AlphaTauri. Gasly looked decent throughout the weekend while Sonoda struggled throughout the entirety of the weekend. But unfortunately, while Gasly looked really good, I believe finishing, what, second in FP2, just similar to Vettel, did not have the pace in qualifying. I went back and watched all of his laps as well. The guy could just not... I I, I think he was largely biased towards race setup in qualifying, unlike in FP3 because he could just not put together sector one. I mean, lap after lap, he went way too wide, way too slow through turn that, that sweeping turn two at the start of the lap and, and just could not put together a good lap. And so, you know, that put him at the back of the grid at the start, set up for a bad race. And unfortunately, while Sonoda looked decent in race, um, taking the engine penalty early, you know, for the race itself, he, the guy crashed coming out of the pits, uh, you know, a bit of fault on the race engineer for hyping up his pit exit, because what you heard was you're going to be racing Gasly on pit exit. And I think he just got a little over eager, punched it coming out of the pit, locked up his tires, turning into the corner and, and went straight in the wall. So a bit unfortunate for him, given what has been a decent, acceptable year coming off of last year with a lot of crashes and, and excess aggressiveness, but overall pretty, pretty weak weekend for AlphaTauri overall. Nothing. I, you got nothing for me on AlphaTauri. This is just the white bread of the race to me. No comment, your honor. <laughs> he did, however, ultimately lead to what was the last, you know, bit of excitement in the fa- last 10 laps or so, bringing the pack back together and, and giving signs a chance before yeah, well, Max ran away so with it. Latif. So did Latifi last year at the final race, but I don't give him any credit for that. So it's like, you know, I mean, he, he, whatever. Thanks for coming. Thanks for him. He, uh, he put stroll in the points. Let's just say that. So let's move on to Alfa Romeo because, um, they ultimately had a very strong weekend, a bit of a roller coaster weekend. In fact, FP one, both drivers were at the back of the grid. Um, Botas again had no running in, in FP two, 
Um, but in FP3, in the rain, they were a solid 11-12, 10-11 in qualifying. They managed the race well. Minimal excitement from them. And ultimately, as a result of the Alonzo penalty from weaving on the straights, they finished 7-8, um, made up ground on some of their competitors, six in the constructors, just six be points behind Alpine, um, 11 behind McLaren. Um, overall, I think Botas finished well. He's currently eighth in the drivers, just four points off of Norris, uh, which is, is kind of shocking to hear. And then Joe, second points finish of the year after a long stretch of some mechanical issues. So two questions for you. First off, is Botas having the most underrated season of the year uh, out of any driver? I don't want to say that when Joe seems to be, his teammate seems to be gaining relative ground on him. It's hard to call somebody underrated when that's the case. Maybe they're both underrated. I, I don't know. Um, although, as I say that, I don't know who's what case I would make for a more underrated season if you define underrated as relatively successful, but also untalked about. So, yeah, sure. All right. Botas is having the most underrated season. I... I'll give Joe a little shine, though. Usually he's my white bread choice of the weekend, and I just don't care to talk about him. But I do want to give him a little bit of shine. Like, over the last two weeks, he seems like the bad luck that he, string of bad luck he had at the beginning of the year, seems to have worn off, and he might have a little bit of pace. I am willing to hear an argument that right now he's the best paid driver on the grid, which isn't, like, the highest of praises, but, you know, like, decently high. He's He seems to be on a good trajectory. So, yeah, uh, you know, good on him. Uh, he was clearly pretty thrilled about it on team radio so so despite his his positive accomplishments you still do bucket him though as a paid driver i mean how could you that that's not that's not an opinion that's just like an objective i mean fact. he didn't perform terribly enough in, in in f2 though right i mean you would watch any given weekend and he's yeah, he's but, in the fight dude he's not in he, he doesn't have a seat objectively without access to the chinese market and backing of Chinese sponsors. But you do think he showed out this weekend. He he had a good good showing. Better than most. Yeah, I mean, look, he didn't show up in World Beat, but, like, a guy like that still doesn't deserve a seat over Oscar Piastri if it isn't for the general politicking of the sport. Like, I didn't, you know? So, I could probably also make a case for a couple other F2 drivers above him. So, you know, I, I just want to give him a little bit of shine. I'm not, like, here, I'm not on team show, but, like... I, more than I have in the past. That's all. Fair enough. I'll I'll, I'll take it since I have been as uh, uh, a bit more of a backer so far. But let's move on to Alpine because they started off really hot throughout the weekend. Um, look, Alonzo um, did well all sessions while Ocon, you know, he consistently closed the gap with Alonzo. And so I don't know if they were trying some different things or Ocon just effectively learned throughout the weekend. But just as a brief recap, Alonzo, uh, he was third in FP1, fifth in FP2, um, first in FP3 with the rain, and qualified second. Um, and then Ocon, meanwhile, 15th to 10th to fourth in the rain and qualified second in the rain. Um, and so, and largely his, his FP1 performance was chalked up to limited running did you just flip hold on did you just flip alonzo and ocon you just said ocon qualified second in the no rain. no alonzo qualified second. second he ocon was seventh in the rain oh sorry i heard second instead seventh, of seventh. yeah okay seventh yeah. sorry just after sixth um 
and and largely that poor performance in FP1 was up to some limited running due to uh, a piece of tissue paper blocking his brake duct and and causing him to to head to the pits through the the remainder of the session. But um, ultimately, Alonso looked amazing all throughout the weekend. I think further substantiating my belief that they are the fourth best team on the grid, but unfortunately dropped it in race largely due to the um, uh, unfortunate timing of the virtual safety car being initiated and closed. The second safety car with Mick Schumacher literally passed the, the pit lane right as it was initiated. I think just as it was concluded, passed again. So just unfortunate timing for him, missing out on, on some of the benefit of pitting under under safety car. And so he went crazy long with medium tires, ultimately put him further down the grid, and then subsequently got a five-second penalty due to swerving, trying to block Botas, which put him from seventh to ninth on the grid. But what was your take on Alpine overall, the performance of Alonso, Ocon, and ultimately the stewards' decisions on the uh, Alonso penalty? Do you agree? Yeah, so fuck Ocon. Don't like him. Still don't like him. Uh, that's all I got to say about that. Um, the uh, ultimate test of driver skill is a wet qualifying. I'll hold to that forever. And that, to me, says all you need to know about Alonzo. Weaving in the straight in front of Botas was definitely merited. The unfortunate part is, if you watch Botas' onboard, Alonzo really didn't need to weave because he also had DRS. And Botas probably wasn't getting around him, but I mean, I get it. It's like, bang, bang, you're in the car. You're trying not to get overtaken. So, like, it's hard to, who am I to say? Um, but, yeah, I, I I stand by my kind of early season statement. There is not a driver on this grid I want to win a race more than Alonzo. And at some point, he's going to earn it. You just got to feel like he's going to show up on a weekend where there's chaos and he's going to figure it out. Although I did like... I don't know if you caught in the pre-race. He when he after he qualified, he was talking about how I'm going to beat Max off the line and basically get my photograph in first, and then I know I'm going to get my door blown off. But like we're going to give him hell off the line, and then he got blown away off the line. Like didn't even like touch Max's tire into the first turn. Like it wasn't even close. But uh, I thought that was I, I like the spirit of that. Right? Like I'm going to get in front, get the picture, and then uh, and then we'll let it Max go on his way. Um, but yeah, I agree with everything else you said. But to your point, uh, last week around Alonzo and the and the drifting capabilities, it was interesting watching the cars coming out of that hairpin into the long straight because throughout the entire weekend, the Alpine was one of the cars that that had the most rotation, constantly stepping on the throttle, particularly in the rain, almost to the point where you're like, this car is going to spin out and crash. Um, but, but he managed it, he controlled it. And so I think they might be sacrificing a bit of downforce for, again, setting up for that long, long straight race pace. And, and with a driver like that, you, you have that luxury, but yeah, they are, they're definitely uh, capitalizing on his, his ability to manage some oversteer to, to maximize high speed on the, on the straightaways. He loves him an unstable rear. Uh, all right. Can we don't just we all, you know what I'm saying? Can, can we, can we, Jesus, no. Can we just, yeah, I could make a, I could make a joke about your tendencies from a r- romantic standpoint, but I'm not going to go there because I think I still consider you a fan. <laughs> all right. Uh, if we, can we skip McLaren? Cause I honestly don't want to talk about Zach Brown's Boy Scout troop. It was a 
total just <laughs> cluster of a weekend from start to finish, driver performance, picker performance, everything. I don't really think there's anything here to write home about. I mean, overall, zero points on the weekend. Like you said, Norris couldn't properly qualify. They ruined his race in the pits. Couldn't find his tires. Couldn't even <laughs> put tires on his car. However, I will note, just second week in a row, Ricardo, bit of outperformance over Norris here. So, I don't know. IndyCar might have to wait another year. That's all. I'll leave it there. I think it's hard to judge, given the circumstances. I hear you. If it happens at Silverstone, then we'll talk. That's what I'll commit to you. If Ricardo beats Norris at Silverstone on pace... Then we'll talk. Deal. All right, let's move to the to the big dogs. Top three. Can we take the can we take the big three as a collective here and bounce around? We don't have to go through yeah, yeah. necessarily. And lead things off. What, what was your takeaway overall on this on this weekend? Give me the highlights. We've already talked about relative performance of Russell and 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 Hamilton. I'll stand by if they can develop that car in the right direction. They're the two best drivers on the on the grid. Uh, I was honestly very happy to see Hamilton on the podium, despite my you know, conspiracies about him overplaying his back pain. Like the guy's clearly, clearly grinding and has the fire and wants to do well. Good to the fans. Like I was happy to see him on the podium. It was good to see him get rewarded for that. Um, Yeah. Look, the other one is Ferrari. I mean, I think that I'm, I'm genuinely surprised that signs did not, at least take a run at max or have the op- opportunity to. Because uh, that car had better race pace than I think even I was expecting. But for whatever reason, and I think it affected Leclerc's ability to get around Ocon too. I think that he and Signs were suffering some of the same symptoms. For whatever reason, they could not get a clean exit on that, that last... Well, I can't remember what they call that, what the name for that turn is, but before... That straight chicane and then home. The hairpin. They could not get a clean exit on that hairpin. And they struggled, whether it was Red Bull or Alpine, to overtake a car that had a lower downforce package and faster straight line speed. And ultimately, I think it's what prevented Leclerc from what probably should have been. I mean, I think that's why Ferrari decided to take the power unit penalty for this track because they knew with the DRS zones, the amount of straightaways, they were like, well, he could still be on the podium, right? Like, he may even catch Perez, right? Plus, Perez had still been in the race. You know, they're not even thinking about getting around Mercedes. But, yeah, I mean, Ocon held him up, and ultimately he had no chance of getting around either the Mercedes. And um, so I think it's a good news, but also kind of like a little bit of a – like, you feel good about signs, but then you're also like, well, Leclerc still maybe have, should have done better than that. So, a little bit of a mixed bag for Mercedes. And then for me, Red Bull is just a story of misfortune for Perez and also self-inflicted mistakes. He kind of exposed a little bit of, like, the what maybe makes him not an ultimate championship-winning driver, even in the championship-winning car. is It ultimately comes down to consistency in variable conditions, and he clearly didn't have it. So, that's on him. And then Max is just like, dude, what can you say? I mean, the guy is like, he was untouchable. I mean, even in qualifying, man, like every single time somebody would put a lap within a sniff of him in a tenth of a second, the next lap he would throw down, he'd put a second gap on him again. I mean, it was like literally on autopilot. It was so impressive. And then how he kept signs, how he kept signs behind him with those DRS detection points in 10 
lap older tires? I will honestly never know. And if you listen to Horner post-race, I think even he was shocked. I don't think he thought Max was holding that lead. Didn't put a foot wrong. Didn't go wide a single time. Didn't even appear like he was sweating. And he just, just kept the gap. It was impressive as hell, man. All right. Sorry, that was my what, – what, give me your run through. I thought that was a great, a great synthesis. I mean, just starting with Red Bull to get that out of the way, I totally agree with all your points. I, I think with Max in particular, absolutely one half of it is just extreme precision. Both through qualifying, agree with you. It was just shocking. You're right. He would come out seven-tenths Every time. of second, five-tenths, right? Just no problem. Clockwork. Like clockwork. And in the race, I mean, just no mistakes. One mistake – on what is it turn 10 and signs has a chance but admittedly at no point did signs even come close enough where he had a he genuine threatened him. he had a genuine chance to make a dive on the inside and so while part of that is max i do think the other part of that is just effective management of your battery pack they allowed signs to continue to close the gap throughout the lab charge the battery come straight away Max is able to empty it and, and signs never had a chance. And so it kind of goes to the same idea of the times that Max has been trailing Leclerc and managing the gap to 1.5, two seconds has the pace in hand, but just waiting for the tires to degrade, to capitalize. I think it's the same dynamic that you continue to see with Ferrari. I don't know if it's they've, they've somehow created a car with a bit more oversteer. It's just a bit more downforce, but they definitely have, higher degradation because signs was able to to threaten at least on the first handful of laps after the safety car but then as you got to the last few laps the tires degraded pulled there it was out. no realistic chance that he had in the last four or so laps and so look red bull just has the I, I, and i think that's an indication of they confidently have the pace in hand where they're not genuinely threatened and so i I think that's a good look for Red Bull, albeit unfortunate for the gearbox issue with with Perez. I, I haven't seen any additional reporting yet on what that means in terms of potential engine penalties, but potentially the first sort of genuine failure of an engine component that could lead to a, a grid penalty for Perez and, and potentially sets him further back in what was a, a bit of a a bit of a chase for the the drivers championship but as you said the the consistency particularly in the rain a bit of a differentiator unfortunately for showing the class of of Perez it doesn't change anything i've thought about the red bull team over the past couple weeks it's unfortunate for perez he made a mistake i think he'll bounce back uh if i thought that perez had an outside shot at the drivers title over the last two weeks it was an outside shot at the end of the day man like this race just continues to reinforce. Max, Max is really fucking good. I mean, he's flawless. He's he's really good, man. He doesn't make mistakes. Where was a mistake and, at, at anywhere from qualifying on? Yeah, and honestly, it's one thing to see a driver. I mean, I don't, I don't want to disparage. I don't want to turn this into a, a a dig at Lewis, but like the 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 Lewis of recent memory has been the Lewis that's been constantly outperforming as the lead car out in front with a significant gap. I mean, obviously he fought Max head-to-head and did a lot of great wheel-wheel racing last year, and that should all go to his credit. But Max is consistent even when, like, the racing is consistently very close, whether it was Jetta this year 
or getting traced down at Miami or in Canada. He's been under pressure a lot on track to just like not fuck up in a turn late in a race, and he hasn't. And he deserves all the credit in the world for that. Also, one other thing I got to say. Actually, no, wait. I'm going to hold this one until we get to personal podiums, which we're probably going to be. All right, well, let me, what, any yeah, other, let me bring it home yeah. with, with one question here, which is, um, you know, you talked a bit about about Hamilton, the the precision that he has or, or doesn't have at the moment. And look, he had a lockup turn one. Damaged some medium tires. Fortunately, you have Perez with a, a, causing a virtual safety car on lap seven, eight, allowing Hamilton to pit alongside Max. But that's the kind of seemingly small error that jeopardizes a race that sort of runs a clean a clean distance. And so you don't see that. I mean, I mean, that's not the type of precision that's going to win you. Again, it's a small thing. Everybody lock, everybody locks up, dude, at some point. I mean, I agree, but it it makes a difference, especially in, in previous seasons where you don't necessarily see lap seven mechanical failures, that kind of stuff matters. And so it was just a, a subtle indication of relative performance. And, and admittedly, when you look at the entirety of the weekend, particularly qualifying with Russell playing a bit of a gamble, going to slicks when no one else did in qualifying in the rain, what was your reaction to Russell's decision to, to be bold, go to the slicks? Good for him. You, you, Good for you him. He was a little too big in the britches, Dude, going too aggressive. It, fortune... Fortune favors the brave. I'm never going to penalize a guy who takes a calculated risk. He knew he, at worst, was going to start 10th on the grid. He ended up 8th. He was able to recover the drive. The only thing he sacrificed by going for that was the track position to Hamilton, which at the end of the day, not that big of a deal. It's a podium. He still had his top five. Yeah, yeah. So, like, for me, it's, 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 it's a dice roll. It could have looked brilliant. It had a chance to. He was a little bit overeager about it. It doesn't look great when you're the only guy on the track that tries it, but you know what? I, I, I'm not going to fault a guy for for at least giving it a go. He didn't run the car into the barrier and cost the team a million dollars. It was a calculated risk. Good for him. I, I, I like guys taking shots, calling their number. Sometimes it doesn't work. So it was worthwhile. I think that's worthwhile risk reward trade off. I think that's a that's an, a, indicative of a championship mentality. It wasn't. I didn't interpret it as a move of desperation. I interpreted it as a guy that was willing to call his own number, has a lot of confidence in himself, went for it, didn't quite pay off. Hey, it might next time, and he might look like a genius. And I also, Russell is a driver I actually feel like has a great perception as a wet driver. So, hey, go for it, you know? Uh, 75 to 80% of that track was ready for slicks. There was just two corners that weren't, and one of them bit him. Yep. You, you nailed it, right? Sector one, first two corners. I mean, the first, he had two laps. He had two sh- chances at it. First time he spun. The second time, it just took him way too long to get around turn two. But yeah, admittedly, the rest of the track would have afforded him the the opportunity for a better qualifying position, but didn't quite work out. So I would agree with that. I think um, the calculus was the calculus was right. Let me let me propose this. We have personal podium and DNF for the week to do. I think we should do a separate episode because we have a two-week gap for a Silverstone preview. Okay. We can do it shorter, 30, 45 minutes. I did a little bit of research on Silverstone today. There's a lot there, and I want to do Silverstone justice as a track for the history and a lot of the actions that occurred there. We're way over, and I don't think we should do it tonight. 
I propose we do it next Whoa, week. Oh, a first off week episode, breaking new ground. Let's do it. Let's do it. And we, we may have more politics in the sport to cover. I'm sure a lot of news is going to come out between now and then. And Silverstone as a track is so fucking cool. I just, I want to give it time and we don't have it. I love it. Well, with that, let's, uh, let's lead to personal podium DNF of the week and we'll, we'll close it out. You want to get us kicked off? Who was on your personal podium this weekend? Uh, uh, I'm going to say this is going to be a little bit of a bleeding heart here. Hamilton and Russell, I just, as drivers, I got to put them one, two on my personal podium because I think they're just been unbelievably consistent. They've made a lot out of a bad situation with the car. Um, Three, I'm going to go Max's race engineer, uh, GP, because I don't know if anybody else caught it. I'm sure you did because you literally listen to every minute of team radio that is available to you. Uh, I honestly don't even know if you do anything else on (laughs) Sunday night. Uh, But uh, Max, when he came out behind Lewis after the second pit and he was frustrated they lost track position, he got on, immediately got on team radio and complained because he was like, we've got the pit window wrong. How have I come out behind him? And GP, literally without missing a beat, was like, you didn't have the pace. He was like, no, fuck you. Like, we would have done that had you been faster. And so part of me was like, good for you, GP, for freaking sticking up and just saying to your driver, hey, man. You got a right to complain about a lot of things. We're doing the best we can for you. You didn't have the pace. You're behind Hamilton. Now it's your problem. Like, he wasn't a dick about it. And to Max's credit, he didn't, like, snap back at him. He kind of took it. And part of me is like, he's Dutch. He just takes things straight forward. And so maybe GP knows he's going to respond well to that. Gave it to him straight. Love that. Love race engineers sticking up for themselves. I don't like drivers being treated as prima donnas on team radio, like Mick Schumacher being coddled by his race engineers. Oh, Mick. Oh yeah. Great job. Mick. It, like he's too kind. I want a race engineer when he need when it's, it's, it's what I look for in, in a, in a, in a, in a girlfriend too. It's what I love about Aaron. She gives, gives me my shit right back to me when I deserve it. I love to see that from a race engineer. Good on you, GP. I hope you have a great, I, I, I hope somebody bought you a beer this week. I, so I did hear that radio, um, and yeah, I, I love how a matter of fact it was, right? There was no, like, blame. There was no nothing. It was just, to your point of the the kind of the overall dynamic, like, Max was challenging the decision. What the hell happened? GP provided him an explanation, and then they proceeded to continue their race, and he passed Hamilton, and love they that. won the race. Like, I do love the the forceful pushback especially because Max can be rather direct and aggressive. And so, yeah, that was, uh, they, they undoubtedly have the best and most like entertaining driver race engineer dynamic of any pairing on the grid. Um, And I love that you called out Schumacher because yes, his race engineer freaks me out. He sounds like he's Mr. Rogers or like (laughs) some weird, like, yeah, it's just, it's just, he does. His voice is too soft. It's too He's always soft. just coddling him, like, oh, Mick, it's all right. You know, you had a great weekend overall. Qualifying is all right. Yeah, good job. Mick, are you okay? Please tell us you're okay. <laughs> yeah. It's like, dude. Uh, <laughs> His car's ripped in half. He's probably not okay. <laughs> like, um, uh, On my stance, I think um, interesting, you know, both sides of the coin here on, on Mercedes this weekend. But um, for my half, I have to give it to, to Alfa Romeo. Um, finally... No, no mechanical issues, both drivers and the points. Well done. Um, with that, let's go to DNF of the week. What do you got? 
Uh, I'm going to take a dig. I, I've previously been complimentary of the Monaco race stewards in my DNF of the or in my podium, personal podium. I'm actually going to move the Canadian GP race stewards to my DNF of the week on the basis that they literally, as I mentioned earlier, made Sergio Perez hike, like literally hike on a single track dirt trail. Probably could have been bitten by a snake. I don't know. We're going to talk about issues of driver safety. Let's put this one on the table, Toto Wolf. Like, how is there not a Vespa or a scooter sitting around that he can just hop on and ride back to the pit lane when there's no cars on the track? Made no sense to me. I thought that was egregious. So shame on you, Canadian race stewards. There should be an easier way to get back to the pit lane when you go off in turn one. Fair enough. Um, I uh, I noted one, but I've actually just come up with a second that I, I can't believe we almost missed noting. We skipped over William, so we, we lost the opportunity. But first and foremost, had to be Haas. I mean, it just seems so emblematic of the team that you put two drivers in the top six in qualifying and, and leave with no points. I mean, snatching failure from the jaws of success seems to be their their MO, even in previous years where they, they looked so good and yet squandered nearly every opportunity um, that, that they are who we thought they were. Um, in the, in the famous words of Denny Green. Um, but the other one I have to note and was Nicholas Latifi, not for his, his race performance, but of all of the, the talk and publicity of the groundhogs on the track, Latifi actually in his home Grand Prix hit one of the treasured groundhogs. So if you haven't seen this video, he hit a groundhog. If you, if you haven't seen the video of his, of his race video or of his of in practice and his his radio please go back and watch it i mean you <laughs> hear the groundhog hit the fucking tire and he just he just you hear him he's like oh god i hit a groundhog <laughs> and it just seemed so so illustrative of what he has done to the broader like canadian sports <laughs> sports culture <laughs> and just ruining their their beloved creatures um so fail for for latifi on hitting the groundhog absolutely phenomenal just a trail of just death and sadness yeah that's <laughs> uh, that's perfect for a, a man whose father owns a packaged meat yeah, i was gonna say if, packaged <laughs> breakfast meat <laughs> if they don't have a groundhog offer <laughs> Now is the time. Uh, All right. With that. Uh, we got to end on that. <laughs> perfect way to go out. We'll see you all at some undetermined week in between here and Silverstone to talk about <laughs> our our track introduction to Silverstone. Our deep, our deep knowledge of the Silverstone circuit. Deep dive. <laughs> so look forward to that, Graham. Wonderful week. Look forward to Silverstone. Yeah, and uh, everybody, we'll see you then. <laughs>